Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and this week we are turning back time to an episode from last year where we discuss the still highly relevant topic of Section 230, also known as the safe harbor provisions that are the cornerstone of the internet. With that, let's go ahead and get it rolling. So this week, we're giving Corey a break so that we can talk about Title 47 of the U.S. Code, Section 230, which is more commonly known as just Section 230 or the Safe Harbor Provisions. Now, this is something that we've mentioned a few times over the last month, but really something that deserves a lot more attention, which is why we're devoting this entire podcast to me just basically monologuing on why this is so important. So sit down and button up. This is really a relatively small piece of law from the early stages of the internet, but it's become one of the most important tools for protecting freedoms and innovation on the web. Now, the most important piece of this law is a single sentence. It says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. That's a lot of legal mumbo jumbo, but in even simpler terms, This just means that intermediaries on the internet, ranging from internet service providers to websites that publish third-party content, are shielded from liability for what other people say on their platforms. This law also protects the same intermediaries from liability for moderating their content on their platforms, even if the content is constitutionally protected, which is really interesting about this law. But these provisions, they allow websites to leave up comment sections without fear of being sued for what their users say. They allow hosting platforms like YouTube to accept 500 hours of video per minute without fear of being shut down if they miss moderation on one video that contains illegal content. They allow social media sites like Reddit to host discussions and endless memes while moderating hate speech and violence. But Section 230 is what really enables the internet to be the free and open platform that it is today. And without Section 230, as it stands it, and as it's currently understood by law, websites would have to choose between heavily censoring their user content or simply not allowing any user content at all. And I know that like, the first rule of the internet is don't read the comment section, but the internet would be so much different if there was no comment section anywhere and we were not allowed to actively participate on these sites. So even though Section 230 ended up as this bulwark for free speech, the Communications Decency Act as a whole was actually originally designed to restrict free speech on the internet. But before we get into that, let's go through how this law first came to be. And to start, we have to go all the way back to the early 1990s, where the world was really still trying to figure out exactly how to handle the internet. In the United States, Liability for printed material has, uh, was really well established by that time with a, law, a line drawn between publishers and distributors. So publishers should be expected to have some sort of awareness of the material that they were publishing and thus should be held liable for illegal content that they publish. Distributors, on the other hand, would not typically be aware of the content of the publications they were distributing and thus they should be protected from liability. So for example, 
if I publish a book or a magazine full of just blatantly and maliciously false information about a person, I as the publisher could be sued for libel. But if I owned a bookstore that carried that book or magazine, I shouldn't be held responsible for that specific book or magazine's contents. You can imagine the undue burden that would be placed on something like Barnes & Noble or just the neighborhood magazine stand if they suddenly had to police the content of every single piece of printed material that they had on their shelves. Now, in the early 1990s, internet service providers and content platforms were taking a few different approaches when it came to user-generated content on their platforms. Uh, There's two such examples for this, uh, two really big ones that really defined how this law came to be. The first being CompuServe, which took the approach of just not regulating user content at all. They allowed anything and everything to go through their service without any moderation whatsoever. On the other side of that, Prodigy actually employed a team of moderators to remove what they determined to be offensive, obscene, or illegal content. Now, both of these companies ended up being sued for content that was left up on their platforms, and these two cases came to be cornerstone cases for laws on the internet. The first one, which was Cubby Inc. versus CompuServe Inc. Uh, CompuServe was found to be not at fault for the libelous uh, content that was on their platform because they chose to let all content go unmoderated. And because of that, they were determined to be a distributor and thus not liable for any content posted by their users. But in the other case, which was Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy Services Company, Prodigy was determined to have taken an editorial role in regards to their users' content, which made them a publisher and thus liable. And you can imagine the effect that this had on the internet at the time. Because of these rulings, specifically the Stratton Oakmont one, service providers and content platforms were now really incentivized to just stop all moderation, period, and allow any and all content through their pipes and on their pages. It was basically as described by a few representatives and senators at the time, the wild, wild west. Maybe just the Wild West. Maybe not the the Will Smith movie. But anyways, in 1996, Congress was actually working on the Telecommunications Act, which ended up being the first significant legislation regarding telecommunications in over 60 years. And at the time, the Senate had already passed a version of the Communications Decency Act, which was designed to criminalize knowingly sending obscene material to minors which is effectively codifying that Stratton-Oakmont decision. Now, the tech industry realized that this law would be extremely challenging for them since they would effectively be treated as publishers in the context of the First Amendment unless they took a completely hands-off approach and acted solely as distributors, basically giving them uh, the option to deny that they had any idea what what was going through their services and thus make them not liable to these new provisions. Now, two U.S. representatives at the time, Christopher Cox, who was a Republican from California, and Ron Wyden, who was a Democrat from Oregon, heard the pleas and wrote the House Bill Section 503, which was titled the Internet Freedom and Family Empowerment Act, which was designed specifically to override the Stratton-Oakmont decision. Now, Wyden and Cox added these provisions so that service providers could choose to moderate their content, including offensive material, instead of having to act completely as a neutral delivery service and 
by allowing them to do that, they wouldn't be held liable for anything that was left up. In February 1996, the Telecommunications Act, including both the Senate's uh, Communications Decency Act and the Cox Wyden provisions, passed both houses unanimously before being signed by Bill Clinton, and the Cox Wyden provisions were codified as Section 230 and Title 47 of the U.S. Code. Now, the very same day that the Telecommunications Act of 96 passed, the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU, filed a legal challenge for a temporary restraining order for the Communication Decency Act's uh, anti-indecency provisions. So those ones that required organizations to prevent obscene material from making its way to uh, children's eyes. Now, this case eventually made it to the Supreme Court who ruled in a 9-0 to decision, so unanimously, that the anti-indecency sections of the Communications Decency Act violated First Amendment protections for free speech and struck them down. In their decision, uh, Justice Stevens wrote, quote, We are persuaded that the CDA lacks the precision that the First Amendment requires when a statute regulates the content of speech. In order to deny minors access to potentially harmful speech, the CDA effectively suppresses a large amount of speech that adults have a constitutional right to receive and to address to one another. That burden on adult speech is unacceptable, and if restrictive alternatives would be at least as effective in achieving the legitimate purpose that the statute was enacted to serve. It is true that we have repeatedly recognized the governmental interest in protecting children from harmful materials, but that interest does not justify an unnecessarily broad suppression of speech addressed to adults. As we have explained, the government may not reduce the adult population to only what is fit for children. Now, they struck down the anti-indecency portions of the Computer Decency Act, but section these provisions that ultimately became Section 230 uh, ended up surviving. Like in their statement, uh, the Justice Department also said, through the use of chat rooms, any person with a phone line can become their own town crier with a voice that resonates further than it could from any soapbox. Through the use of web pages, mail exploders, and news groups, the same individual can become a pamphleteer. Uh, I don't know what the heck a mail exploder is. Maybe we'll have to ask Pop Pop Corey that on the next episode. But you can see what they're trying to say here. And that's this one specific section, what ended up becoming Section 230, is important for protecting free speech, while the other ones are limiting free speech in violation of the First Amendment. Now, Section 230 isn't really the blanket immunity for service providers that, uh, even though it originally was for really much of the first decade of its existence. For example, one of the first major victories against it involved the, the website roommates.com, uh, which was a platform for matching renters based off of profiles that they create on the website. Now, roommates.com required users to fill out a questionnaire, which included information about their gender, race, and preferred roommate's race. You can see where this might be going. The Fair Housing Council of San Fernando Valley felt that these requirements created a discrimination and violation of the Fair Housing Act and sued roommates.com to hold them liable. In this case, 
eventually ruled against roommates.com, stating that their required profile system made them a content provider and thus ineligible for Section 230 protections. And that's not the only caveat to Section 230. The Digital Millennium Copyright Act of 1998, or DMCA as you probably know it as, also removed Section 230 protections in regards to hosting copyrighted material. And then even more recently, the FOSTA and SESTA bills of 2017 removed Section 230 immunity for services that knowingly support or facilitate sex trafficking. And even though this is seemingly a good idea, it's still pretty controversial. Uh, Because those bills don't distinguish between consensual legal sex offerings and non-consensual ones, it's it's potentially harmful for the safety of sex workers who chose to use online platforms for offering and discussing their services as opposed to alternatives like street prostitution. Section 230 is still really powerful, though, and quite unique. Like the vast majority of other countries on this planet do not have similar laws in their books. Canada, Japan, most of the European Union don't have something similar to Section 230 and their safe harbor laws. This makes the United States a safe haven for websites that want to provide a platform for free expression and or controversial or political content that might be shut down in other nations. And because of this, most major online services are based in the United States to benefit from this safe haven. Now, fast forward to 2020, and Section 230 is unfortunately under major attack from all sides. Many Democrats don't like it uh, because they feel like service providers aren't doing enough to moderate hateful or obscene material. Republicans, on the other hand, think that the service providers are moderating too much, when it comes to making judgments about what content violates their terms of services. Even Wyden himself, one of the original authors of these provisions, who is now a senator, has been very vocal about his disappointment with its application. So last year, he actually had an interview with the New York Times, where he said, There were two parts to the law. There was a shield and there was a sword. The sword was the legal authority of the website owner, to moderate content. And it's clear to me, looking at the evolution of time, that too many sites, particularly the big companies, uh, as they get so prosperous, enjoyed the shield, but weren't willing to use the sword. Now I've told them that if they don't clean up their act and use their authority to moderate content with the sword, then people are going to constantly come after them and say, we're going to take your shield. Now, Wyden is joined by other Democrats, too, who have indicated that they would be in favor of changing Section 230 to make tech companies liable for hate speech publicized on their platforms. In fact, one of the representatives, uh, Beto O'Rourke, who had a uh, presidential campaign in 2020, made one of his campaign promises, including uh, include sweeping changes to Section 230 to make platforms liable if they aren't proactive about taking down hate speech. There's current the current presidential candidate uh, for the Democratic side, Joe Biden, has also indicated that he'd like to weaken or otherwise revoke Section 230 protections for big tech companies uh, like Facebook. And then on the other side of the aisle, you've got Republican senators T- Ted Cruz and Josh Halway, who have been arguing that Section 230 protections should only apply to providers that are politically neutral, 
They've accused major social networks like Twitter of displaying bias against conservatives uh, after they've begun ramping up recently on moderation of content that they've deemed factually incorrect or instigating violence. Hawley's even introduced a bill that would task the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, with certifying tech companies uh, and certifying them that they are approaching moderation in a politically neutral way, specifically applying to companies with over 30 million active users in the U.S., 300 million users global, or $500 million in global revenue. So think the big social media sites like Facebook or Twitter or Reddit. This certification would come in the form of a vote every two years by the five FTC commissioners and would require a supermajority, meaning four of the five commissioners, to vote in favor of certification. And any tech company that failed certification would lose Section 230 protections and would be subject to liability litigation. And now, whether or not you're against Holly's bill or holding these big tech companies liable for hate speech or political uh, non-neutrality, you have to admit that there's some concern with giving the ability of two of five members of a commission uh, the ability to control a decision on whether or not a platform is politically neutral or not. That's way too much power for two people. If they say no, then that certification fails. Now, Holly's bill isn't even the most egregious or immediate threat to Section 230. In March of this year, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, along with bipartisan co-sponsors, introduced the EARNIT Act, which you've heard us talk about a few times on this podcast already. Uh, EARNIT stands for Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Internet Technologies Act of 2020. And its summary states that its intention is to establish a national commission on online child sexual exploitation prevention, which may develop recommend, recommended best practices that service providers may follow or choose to implement to prevent, reduce, and respond to the online sexual exploitation of children. And honestly, like in its summary, this sounds like a great idea. There's no sane person on this planet that could argue against limiting the, avil the ability for horrible people to exploit children. But as with most legislation these days, the title and the advertised subject is really designed to gain support while distracting from concerning provisions inside the bill that most people don't actually read. So like I said a second ago, the summary of the bill says that service providers may choose to implement the best practices that the committee comes up with, but in reality, the bill explicitly amends Section 230 to further revoke safe harbor protections unless, quote, an officer of the provider has elected to certify to the Attorney General under Section 4D of the Earn It Act that the provider has implemented and is in compliance with the child sexual exploitation prevention best practices. So effectively, this means that, yes, the best practices are optional, but if you don't actively elect to follow them, you no longer qualify for Section 230 protections. And now you might say, what if the best practices are actually good, really best practices? And the committee is actually set up in a way, or at least defined by the law, that some of the membership requirements might actually lead to good best practices being considered, 
But unfortunately, the attorney general gets to approve or deny those requirements. And this gives a single person a massive amount of power to shape the direction of those requirements too. And to give you an example of why this is a concern, the current attorney general of the United States, Mr. William Barr, has been very vocal about his desires to introduce encryption backdoors and circumventions for end-to-end encrypted messaging services. And he's already laying the groundwork for saying, I won't accept any best practice recommendations that don't include requirements for law enforcement to access encrypted communications uh, to protect the children. And you've heard Corey and I talk very vocally about anti-encryption laws on this podcast many times because it's something we're really passionate about. They're always disguised as a way to combat terrorism or the exploitation of children, but they're like trying to dig a hole in your backyard with a nuclear bomb. Like The collateral damage is just far too high for this specific tool. And further stripping Section 230 protections or requiring encryption backdoors will not do anything to combat terrorism or child exploitation. Criminals will simply shift to another platform that doesn't fall under the United States jurisdiction. And in the meantime, it's the everyday citizen that will be swallowed up by this blast. A small group of individuals will be able to control and silence platforms for free speech and political dissent. Citizens' web privacy will be stripped away. And companies will have to choose between extreme financial and technological burdens of compliance or simply just shuttering their doors because it's not worth the effort. Now, I've talked a lot about my opinions on Section 230 on this, and I will say that it's not perfect. Like, there are still some genuine concerns with defendants using Section 230 to dismiss cases before the discovery stage could prove that they themselves were the ones generating the illegal content. But the protections that it provides are just far too important to strip away. And a free and important and a free and open internet is reliant on the United States leadership and these safe harbor protections. So if you're a US citizen, this is absolutely an issue worth contacting your representatives for. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF.org, has an action center page with really easy instructions and a tool for finding and contacting your representatives and your senators. And obviously, while a phone call is a lot more impactful, even just filling out one of the little templated this matters to me emails and firing it off to all of your reps is way better than nothing. And if you're not a U.S. citizen, now is the time to demand legislative protections similar to Section 230 within your own country. Because if the safe harbor in the United States closes, we need a backup option to take over the stewardship of one of our most important resources, the internet. This isn't the last time you're going to hear us talk about Section 230. We're going to be following the Earn It Act very closely every step of the way, and we'll keep you updated on its status. Uh, And because Corey isn't here to say otherwise, I also want to recommend donating to or working with the EFF. If you're a developer, they're always looking for people to help out with their tools. And if you just have a couple extra bucks to spare, they do a lot of work towards protecting organizations and uh, individuals and keeping the internet free and open. Like they've been around since 1990 and all they've done is try and protect the free and open internet. So that's it for this episode. We'll be back with a normal episode next week. Uh, Please, please, please reach out to your elected officials and let them know that Section 230 and similar laws are important to you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. 
As always, if you have any questions or concerns or suggestions for future episode topics, reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept, and the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thank you again for listening, and you will hear from us again next week.